This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. I'm going to tackle something this hour that's kind of all in the same wheelhouse, as it were, and it may be a little bit narrow for everybody to feel as strongly as some people will, but I think it's going to be applicable to everybody ultimately. And I'm talking about the whole issue concerning social justice in the church, concerning the liberalization of evangelicalism, concerning a lot of these people who have been saying for years that they're all about the gospel, but as it turns out, they're the ones who have become woke. They're the ones who have been embracing critical race theory and identity politics and the Black Lives Matter protests and telling us we're all a bunch of white supremacists, even though we look at them and they're white too, and we're going, what? So this is kind of what is ailing a lot of evangelical circles right now, and it's across the board. I mean, we've seen it in the mainline liberal denominations for many years. I was arguing with somebody over the weekend on Twitter about this, and I said, you know, really what tanked the mainline was rejecting the inerrancy of scripture and it ended up leading to the embrace of social justice because when you when you jettison the bible what else do you have you have to have some sort of cause to bring people in the door it hasn't worked too well by the way because the mainline has just absolutely shedded people by the millions and we all know about that but then it crept into evangelicalism. And I think part of this, there are many, many reasons, but part of this is because we had a seeker-sensitive movement that really took over in the 80s when people started thinking about what in the world do the non-Christians want? And you had Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. And I saw that all up close as I was growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. So I know how, you know, how that all kind of unfolded. But it became a form of worldliness that really captured a lot of evangelicals who probably were initially well-meaning and saying, we really want to reach people with the gospel, but we have to find points of commonality. So let's take down the crosses. Let's take down the stained glass windows. Let's get rid of the organs. Let's have cool music. Let's do this and that. And then the next thing we knew, we turned around and it was some kind of show. Let's put on a show. And we went, what happened here? And then they had an internal statistic, I don't know, statistical compilation there, a study that was done at Willow Creek. I remember this years ago, and they realized that people didn't really know the Bible and they were not very happy about it. And so Bill Hybels turned around and told everybody they had to become self-feeders. Remember that? And those of us who knew better said, you can't just have a pastor telling people, you're not being fed the word of God. You better figure out a way to feed yourself. That's like telling a baby, oh, you want some milk? Well, it's in the fridge. Go get it. I mean, that's not how it works. At any rate, that paved the way for what happened in the mid-90s. And what happened in the mid-90s was a movement that came along called the Young, Restless, and Reform Movement. And this was a movement largely credited to people like Albert Moeller and John Piper 
And it was an embracing of Calvinism and embracing of Reformed theology. I'm not going to get into all the details of the differences between just the five points of Calvinism and full-blown Reformed theology as practiced in Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, etc. But they're all kind of intertwined. And then out of that, we saw the establishment of the Gospel Coalition. And for the last many years, these people who have been running these movements and have had positions of influence in the culture of evangelicalism, whether at the seminary level or with ministries like Desiring God or at the Gospel Coalition, they have had huge amounts of influence. And what has happened over time is we have seen, or at least this was my experience, when you had these people coming into the church here, they're bringing the most, probably the most conservative theology you could come up with, Calvinism. I mean, what is more conservative than Calvinism in many people's minds? And then all of a sudden, they all went woke. And a lot of people were left going, what just happened here? I thought it was all about deeper theology. And this is such a change from the seeker-sensitive movement, which stressed entertainment and stressed a business model and stressed practicality, pragmatism. And you guys are so deep and you're telling people to read the Puritans and you're telling people to dig more deeply into the doctrines of scripture. And this is such great meat. We love it. And what do you mean you're woke? And, and worse than that, you had a lot of people who came along and said, you're woke. Awesome. I'm in, which is even weirder. And so I put out this series of tweets. This was back in June. I'm not going to read them all to you, but it started out with a thought that I had that it's weird how we have seen the embracing of social justice and the woke theology and the identity politics coming from people we thought were really conservative Calvinists. And I just said, can we all see the sobering reality now when the devil took aim at destroying modern evangelicalism from within? He used a Trojan horse that he dressed in the last disguise anybody expected Calvinism. Now I got kicked and people said, what do you mean you're blaming Calvinism for this? I said, no, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. I, 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 I don't blame Calvinism at all. What I'm saying is that if you have the enemy trying to get into a movement and destroy it from within, you have to come in a disguise that makes you look as innocuous as possible and as non-threatening as possible. And what could be better than coming in a disguise of saying, I'm coming in the name of really strong, solid biblical doctrine? I mean, who in the world would think that that was a problem? Now, maybe somebody who was a Lutheran or somebody who was an Arminian, they'd look at that and say, I'll have a problem with it because of free will or what have you. I'm going to, on the Arminian side, I have a problem with that theologically. That's Set that aside for a moment, though. The average evangelical who sees someone coming who says, we need to be more faithful to the scripture and we need to be deeper. We need to go deeper into the Bible. That's always a good thing. And that's why seeing all this woke stuff and this social justice stuff cropping up from that movement is so weird and has caused so much cognitive dissonance in the church. So this brings me to an article that I saw at the Aquila Report, and I thought it was just fabulous. It was written by a man named Samuel Say. Actually, he's a Ghanaian Canadian who lives in Brampton, which is a city just outside of Toronto, Canada. And he wrote this great article, and it's called Why Reformed Christians Are Vulnerable to Social Justice. I can't get into it every single word, but he's talking about how weird this is. And he says, many professing Christians are more committed to Black Lives Matter than biblical theology. 
our culture's understanding of justice or social justice ideology hasn't only infiltrated colleges, it's also infiltrated churches. Professors are influencing Christians to adopt an unbiblical view of justice, and pastors are encouraging them to embrace it, especially Reformed pastors. I've received hundreds of emails from people over the last couple months, and they're almost entirely from people who feel pressured to adopt social justice ideology or critical theory from their Reformed pastors. Social justice has become so widely accepted in mainstream Reformed circles, it might be considered their sixth point of Calvinism. Some influential leaders and organizations look like they identify with social justice just as much as they identify with the five points of Calvinism and the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation. At this rate, social justice is probably going to be one of the major legacies and pitfalls of the young, restless, and reformed movement. Now, I was floored by this because I have been thinking this for years, and it only really came out of my mouth, or should I say my fingers on the keyboard, or maybe it was my iPhone, one of those, when I tweeted this out in the beginning of June, and I said, this movement I, I, it pains me to say it because there are a lot of great Christians who were really influenced by this movement, including me in the early days. This movement has turned out to be what I hope will not be ultimately the undoing of modern evangelicalism. And who in the world could have predicted it? It's weird. It throws you for a loop because on paper, it isn't Calvinism that's the problem. It's what they did with Calvinism once they won everybody's trust, or I should say so many people's trust. And I think it's absolutely undeniable. It is not one or two people. It is so many people. And you look at what's happening in the PCA and Revoice and the rejection of six-day creation and some of the things that have happened, the good faith subscription and all the problems that have happened in the PCA. I'm going to be talking with Reverend Al Baker about that in a little while, a little later in the show. They've got a new denomination that they're forming out of the, you know, the, the carnage of the PCA. But what has happened, really? What has gone on in these circles? We're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. You are listening to Janet Mefford today. We'll be back after this. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer in Asia, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ is found lacking, we're urged to help meet their need. These Christians live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of the gospel, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's word, and your gift today lets them know they're remembered. For only $5, believers like Hyo in China and Miriam in Nepal will receive a Bible, be discipled in their new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. Listeners, we're grateful you've generously sent Bibles to more than 2,000 Christians in Asia. Please help us send more with Bible League International. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. 
We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. We're talking a little bit about the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. I have been of the opinion for quite a while that this movement, while it started out strong and seemed like a great new movement for the church, returning the church to solid biblical doctrine, theology, a deep kind of Christianity that we hadn't seen popularized in a lot of our lifetimes, now has given way to wokeness and to social justice and to Black Lives Matter and It's just getting worse by the day. And a lot of Christians who were on board with this movement early on, Al Mohler, John Piper, were some of the people who popularized Calvinism and Reformed theology early on, are looking at these people now and saying, what did I get myself into? I didn't, I thought you guys were conservatives. I thought you guys were conservatives across the board. And now what's going on? And it's been interesting to see how many people have been having that reaction. What just happened. Well, I was referring earlier to this great article from Samuel Say, Why Reformed Christians Are Vulnerable to Social Justice. And he really makes a very good point, which is the Young Restless and Reform Movement, or sometimes called Neo-Calvinism or New Calvinism, was born as an alternative to the seeker-sensitive movement, but it will die as its own version of the seeker-sensitive movement. Like the seeker-sensitive movement, the Young Restless and Reform Movement embraced a celebrity culture and naturally an elitist model that sometimes prioritizes tribalism over truth and compromise over courage. He goes on to say, many Reformed pastors have emailed me saying they're being pressured by influential Reformed pastors to adopt social justice ideology so they can maintain or welcome black people in their church. And that is one of the major reasons why Reformed Christians have become vulnerable to social justice ideology. Interesting point. Of course, he's African-American himself. He ends saying Reformed theology isn't vulnerable to social justice ideology, far from it. In fact, as a synonym for biblical theology, Reformed theology is diametrically opposed to social justice ideology. But many Reformed people today are mostly just five-point Calvinists who do not embrace the Reformed confessions or the implications of the solas. And therefore, today, we have just as much in common with the seeker-sensitive movement as we do with the Reformers. That's why we've become vulnerable to social justice ideology. Very good piece over at the Aquila Report. You can read it for yourself. But I want to play some cuts here just to make my point All the people who are out there who are saying, why should I care about that? I'm not reformed. This isn't my church. It's not my denomination. It affects you. Believe me, when I talk all about revoice, you had a lot of enablement of revoice by people within this movement. You have had the Russell Moores and the Al Mohlers and the John Pipers and the the Gospel Coalition people, Tim Keller and D.A. Carson. What was it? Three, two, three years ago, I was saying D.A. Carson endorsed this book, Single Gay Christian, and the guy who wrote Single gay Christian ended up being at Revoice. He was one of the leaders at the first Revoice. So this is all 
really a big problem. Tabidi Anyebwile, who works over at the Gospel Coalition, he's the one who told white people that your grandparents and parents were complicit in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. just because they're white. And I think he ended up having to backtrack. But we've been getting more and more weirdness out of this crowd. I want to play for you some cuts here. Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler, who is the pastor of the Village Church, was on some board for the ERLC with the Southern Baptist Convention, but he's very woke. Oh, is he woke? Here's Matt Chandler speaking in 2018 about the issue of white privilege. Now, he talked about, before this cut that I'm going to play, he was talking about learning history and how he grew up learning history only about people who look like me. And I thought, oh, I know this is going to go downhill quickly. And it did. This is cut one. Nothing makes Anglos more angry than the idea of white privilege. But let's just talk for a second, if you'll give me just just a second. So white privilege isn't overt racism, right? Instead, it's just this unique kind of experience of life and predominant culture. So again, let's go back and talk about it. Growing up throughout your history books, if you learned anything other than white people built and made America great white, it was during the month of February, it was condensed, and it was kind of a millimeter of depth of really what other kind of ethnicities contributed to what's now modern day uh, America. And and even if you are, and then when you open up your newspaper, or you grab a magazine, you're going to see Anglos portrayed mostly in a positive sense, right? Um, if you go to buy your kids toys or go to buy them a little book, it's going to be pretty easy to just find kids that look like them on the cover. So we don't know what it's like to have to look around Barnes and Nobles for 15 minutes trying to find a book about a little girl growing up that looks like our little girl or like a little boy growing up that looks like our little boy. Like we've never had to struggle with that. We we don't get anxious every time we open up a newspaper about how we'll be portrayed. We, we don't, th- these, are, these are aspects of, it's an invisible air that we breathe, the type of lens that we wear. Oh, knock it off. You know, I just listen to this garbage and I think to myself, you're just painting with this broad brush. You're doing the same stuff that we're hearing from these Marxist leaning activists who are constantly trying to make white people feel guilty for sins they never committed and for thought crimes that they can't even prove white people even have had. It's insane. Then he goes on to talk a little bit more. Listen to cut two. So what happens is when things blow up, we can look at African-Americans or Asians or um, Hispanics and, and because of the lenses in which we we wear and how we've been shaped by this invisible force, we tend to expect, why can't they just, why won't they? And what we're saying in that moment is we're harshly judging and we're expecting if they would just look like us, if they would just do what we've done, then, then none of this would happen. And it's a really kind of terrible judgmental place to sit. And so what we want is we want the truth of God's word and the beauty of the gospel to wash over us. We don't need to feel bad uh, about our experience in the predominant culture. We just need to be aware of it so it doesn't shape how we interact with the world around us. Okay, well, he's chastising white people for being in a terrible judgmental place, sitting in a terrible judgmental place. Seems like he's the one doing that. And by the way, when you go over to Front Page Mag, they have a great little pamphlet from John Parazzo on white privilege and the history of that phrase. And I wanted to read a little excerpt of that for you so I can counter Matt Chandler, who just 
as I said, paints with this very broad brush. You all are privileged and you ought to feel guilty, but you shouldn't feel bad. But you should remember you're really in a place of privilege and you, you, you're looking through lenses and you're shaped by this horrible, invisible force. Let's not get off. You know, just pre- preach the gospel and, and just stay in your lane. You know, knock off the leftist politics. Here's what this pamphlet says on this issue of white privilege, the origins and evolution of white privilege. White skin privilege or white privilege is a concept that first gained a foothold, although a tenuous one, in radical circles in the 1960s. When white leftists first became committed to the notion in Susan Sontag's notorious formulation that the white race is the cancer of human history, particularly noteworthy in framing the critique of whiteness, were a pair of Marxists named Noel Ignatiev, who was a member of both the Communist Party USA and the Students for a Democratic Society, and Ted Allen, also a Communist Party USA member and labor organizer. Coining a term, Allen in 1965 exhorted white Americans to voluntarily repudiate their white skin privileges, reject their white identity, and resign from the white race. Two years later, Allen and Ignatiev co-authored The White Blind Spot, a pamphlet arguing that white supremacy and white skin privilege were akin to a bourgeois poison coursing through the veins of the American body politic. Does that sound a little bit like what Matt Chandler was just trying to tell you? It's not Christianity that you're hearing. It's Marxism. Let's go to another example here of some of the woke in reform circles. I want to go back to a couple of cuts I've played on the show before, but they bear repeating. How does the social justice mentality impact the proclamation of the gospel? This was an interview done between Martin Bashir and Tim Keller, the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition at a Veritas Forum back in 2011. This is cut three. Do you believe that there is only one God and that there is only one way to approach that God? If, yes, if, okay, yes, if, I'm speaking as a Christian here, if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that is, if he is the Son of God from heaven, if he is, um, if he really was bodily raised from the dead, and if he was our original creator, I mean, if all that's true, that's what he says, then of course it'd have to be just one way to God, because our souls would need him or we, they would shrivel eternally, just like your body needs food, or it would shrivel. I mean, the fact is, my body needs food or it will shrivel. That's not narrow-minded to say. That's just the way it is. If Jesus is who he said he is, then our souls would have to get him in order to be eternally full and thrive. And if we don't get him, then we would eternally shrivel. Does that feel like Christianity to you at all? Where does the Bible talk at all about souls shriveling without Jesus. It's laughable. It's so stupid. What are you talking about? Your soul, if it's true, add some confidence in the gospel, isn't it? If, I'm just saying if, if it's true, then there would be only one way to God. Otherwise, your soul will shrivel and souls would have to get him to thrive. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says that we are condemned, we are dead in our sins and transgressions, and the only hope we have of eternal salvation is Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross as the Lamb of God, shedding his blood for us, atoning for our sin, and then when he rose again from the dead on the third day, 
we were saved. We Our salvation was secured. And all of those sinners who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's the good news. It says nothing about your soul shriveling. It says nothing about that at all. And it's not just your soul, by the way. You're going to get your body back at the resurrection. Your body will also be redeemed. That's the hope we have at the last day when Christ returns. And that's left out as well. So what is my point? My point is, this is a movement that we need to critique with the word of God. I don't care what name somebody has, how many books they've written, how many people they draw to conferences. We have to be Bereans and we have to know the word of God so we can critique people who are misleading us. And we're going to get into that more with Reverend Al Baker. We're going to come right back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for being with us. The history of the mainline liberal denominations shows that when you reject the authority of the Bible, it is only a matter of time before you will collapse and watch your pews empty out. We have seen this happen in the Presbyterian Church USA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church USA. And where are they all now? They're flying their rainbow flags. They're ordaining homosexuals. They're pushing social justice and leftist politics because what else do they have? But one of the saddest stories in recent years has been the spiritual atrophy in what was founded as a conservative, faithful breakaway denomination from the PCUSA. I'm talking about the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA. Now, as you know, I started telling you back in May of 2018 about that shocking pro-LGBTQ plus revoiced conference, which was held at a PCA church in St. Louis. And that conference brought so much to the surface in terms of the embracing of homosexuality and the accompanying spiritual rot in the denomination as a whole. A lot has happened, as you know, over the last couple of years. And faithful Christians and pastors in the PCA have been fighting it, but is God now taking some of them in a new direction? We're going to talk about the upside of this conflict today in the PCA. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen comes to mind when it says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And out of the conflict and theological faithlessness in the PCA is emerging a new work called Vanguard Presbytery, which recently held its convocation of sessions. And joining us now to tell us more, Reverend Al Baker, speaker, author, and evangelistic revival preacher with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. He was ordained in the PCA in 1981 and is now joining with these Christians in this new work. And Al, always wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you, Janet. It's always great to be with you. I love your program, and I love what for what you're standing. Well, right back at you, Al, the way that you have stood so faithfully for Jesus Christ has just been awe-inspiring to me. You have been a part of the PCA, PCA I should say, since the mid-70s. So you've been in on pretty much everything that's gone on in that denomination mm-hmm. almost since its mm-hmm. beginning. 
What were your main mm-hmm. concerns? I know you wrote about this recently, but concerning the direction of the PCA, I know you were part of our God's Voice conference and you were very concerned about Revoice. But what was the straw mm-hmm. that broke the camel's back for you? Yeah, it, there was a lot of things leading up to it. One was our view uh, that, that we began to be a little loose on the view of creation in the PCA. That was one issue. Then there's been some critical race theory issues, but really the um, the homosexual issue was the was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I, I just felt like um, it's just going in the wrong direction, and I just don't believe it's going to come back. Uh, I could be wrong, and I have some friends there who are seeking to bring it back, but. You know, we're, we pray for revival all the time, and when revival comes, uh, on the one hand, it does bring unity, but that unity is not necessarily in a denomination. A lot of times, the denomination divides over the issue of revival. Uh, the, the unity comes across ethnic and denominational lines a lot of times. So even if there's a, uh, I mean, of course, we're praying for revival in the United States, but if it comes, it doesn't necessarily mean that the PCA will come back to its roots. So we just felt like uh, it's time to move on, and, and uh, we're very excited about what God's doing. Well, that is really exciting, and I want to get into some of those issues. But first off, for people who don't know much about this effort that you guys have launched, the Vanguard Presbytery, I got to tune in for a, a lot of it, really, on the live stream. Not as much as I wanted to. I'm going to go back and watch certain portions that I missed. But you spoke, and there were some wonderful speakers. You had a tremendous time of prayer. Tell people what this work is all about, what you're seeking to do with this new denomination. Yes, and I realize that a lot of your uh, listeners uh, are not necessarily Presbyterian, so they may not know that much about Presbyterian church history, but just very very much in a nutshell, um, we're trying to be new side, old school Presbyterian, and, and the new side simply means we embrace the revival of the Great Awakening with George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, uh, William Tennant, and so forth. And that means we believe in our doctrinal standards, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we also believe in revival. We believe the Holy Spirit can come down on individuals, convert them on the spot, and bring unction and anointing and power to preachers as they preach the gospel. So that's the foundation. And then old school means there was another division in the 19th century where people began to be, uh, again, loose on the confession. They denied the, the uh, original sin, the imputation of Adam's sin to all, all people. And so uh, the, the old school said, no, 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 we've got to go back to the, to the Westminster Confession. That's our doctrinal standard. We want to be faithful to the Word of God and, uh, and hold to the Word and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit all at the same time. So that's really what we're all about. And, and I might also add... Uh, typically in Presbyterian churches, they have an office of elders, which they divide into teaching elders, which are pastors, and then ruling elders, which are usually laymen, and then deacons. But we're convinced that the Presbyterian church has been, has been missing it pretty much for a long time, in that they don't really have an office of evangelists. And we believe evangelists is, is an office, and we believe it's uh, very important in the church. And so we're focusing in on that, and that's getting a lot of interest. A lot of people are very excited about this very strong, intentional evangelistic effort we're putting forth in Vanguard Presbytery. Well, that is really exciting. All of that is very exciting. When you talk about the Office of Evangelist, Al, how would that actually work? You'd have someone in one position of office, you know, an evangelist for each congregation, or how do you envision this bearing itself out? Well, a couple different ways. One, um, yes, I think every church ought to have an evangelist on their staff. Uh, they might have, a, you know, a teaching elder or an associate pastor. 
But that associate pastor could be uh, ordained as an evangelist. A lot of times he'll be a, a teaching elder, that is, he'll have a seminary education. But his, his giftedness is in evangelism, so his focus of ministry would be on evangelism. So in a day-to-day um, setting, he would be out preaching the gospel. Uh, wherever he could, you know, on the streets, open-air preaching, door-to-door evangelism, survey evangelism. And he would also be uh, teaching others and taking other people out with him and just building uh, a strong, intentional evangelistic thrust in the church. Presbyterians tend to be very, very heavy on the teaching and doctrine, uh, which generally is good, although obviously we're seeing some problems there. But uh, but kind of weak on evangelism, and, and we believe that we've been out of balance, and so we, we simply want to be balanced. We want to have, you know, good, solid biblical teaching and exposition, but we want to have evangelism, and then, of course, the office of deacon. There ought to be genuine biblical mercy ministry. All three of these things need to be in play equally with a balance in the, in the local church. And also, one other way evangelists can be used is in planting churches, and I'm going to be very involved in planting churches in Vanguard. So I have a lot of ideas on how we can really implement evangelists in that regard. Well, that is great. I, I can't think of a better time in American history than for reviving evangelism from the church, because I think really not just in particular denominations of the Presbyterian background, but also all denominations, it just seems like evangelism is not taking center stage the way it once did. Yes, I think you're right. And uh, I think... Uh I, there's a lot of maybe a lot of reasons for that, um, but I, it, at the bottom of it all, I, I think I think it's very easy for us who've been believers for a period of time to to really lose sight of what we were. I, I like to remind people says, you know, the best of us were utterly vile and wicked, yeah. and would have gone to hell one second, you know, one second before God cre- uh, regenerated us. And sometimes we forget that, and I think because of that. We sort of lose a burden for souls. We do, and uh, you know, and we have to realize. Listen, people, people without Jesus Christ go to hell when they die. That's right. a that's a biblical fact, right? And that's we've got right. to get back to that. And I think we just kind of lose sight of it. And and consequently, you know, and, and another thing, I think part of it too, Janet, is that um, a lot of times, uh, let's be honest, uh, you know, evangelism makes us a little nervous. A lot of us, yes. and uh, and we're just we. You know, we we go to the point of least resistance, and let's just stay in my office and you know talk to people who are in the church instead of getting out of our comfort zone and going out and, and reaching people who really need the Lord. You're totally right about that, and that's I mean, really, this is a burden that needs to be on us again because real people, as you say, whom God loves, are headed for hell without Jesus Christ. And how in the world are they to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ if someone does not tell them? We know this is what the Bible teaches. Reverend Al Baker with us. We're going to come right back on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and 
her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thanks for joining us. This hour of Janet Mefford today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us continue to send Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible. You can call now, toll free, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. My guest is Reverend Al Baker, who is an author and speaker and evangelistic revival preacher with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. He was ordained in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, in 1981, and now is joining together with a number of Christians who have been very troubled by the direct of the PCA on the issue of homosexuality and a number of other issues and are forming the Vanguard Presbytery, which recently had its convocation of sessions. Now, as you mentioned before, Al, there are many listeners who are not part of the PCA and are not Presbyterian, so they don't necessarily understand how all of this works. But where do you go from here? You just had this convocation. Have you formed the denomination? Do you have people joining? How does this all work when you launch a movement like this? Yes, well, we, uh, of course, in the Presbyterian Church, we have presbyteries, which are generally regional, like in one particular state, or depending on how many churches you have. But now we have churches from all over the United States uh, coming in. So right now, I guess you might call Vanguard Presbytery sort of a holding tank right now. So we are receiving uh, churches. We are receiving uh, elders and evangelists and so forth. And um, this will only grow as time goes on. Um, I think it slowed down a little bit because of COVID-19 and the fact that PCA General Assembly did not meet in June because of uh, the pandemic. But um, uh, I think that's going to pick up as time goes on. But the inf- So uh, to answer your question more specifically, uh, right now, again, individual uh, churches are, are coming in and pastors and uh, ruling el- or teaching elders are coming in, and a, a number of these men are coming in as evangelists. One other thing, too, I think that's pretty amazing is that most of the interests thus far are individuals around the country who, you know, they say, well, I'm not sure my church is ready to, to leave the PCA. Now, there's also a couple of other denominations interested as well. 
but uh, they say, but we really want a, a true gospel preaching church. <laughs> and so I've got contact with about 13 different cities around the United States that want us to come and plant a Vanguard Presbytery Church. Wow. So that's pretty exciting as well. Yeah, and I, I would imagine COVID-19 has interrupted your efforts because it's interrupted everybody's efforts on every front, it would seem right now. But uh, that's really encouraging. And, you know, it's good to get a little bit of good news, Al. I just have to say, having followed the Revoice controversy for as long as I have, This is sad in a way because it's always sad when a denomination is going in the wrong direction and then Christians who try to reform it end up having to leave. But what are your thoughts on the Lord making this separation and maybe the upside of that? Yeah, we're very, we're very, very optimistic. Uh, the meeting, and, and you, you know, you saw part of it uh, the other day, and, uh, but it, it was, it was beautiful. As I was preaching, I said, the, the folks here are happy people. Yeah. You know, we're happy because we're doing the Lord's work. And I really believe that when we're reaching out to people and serving people with the gospel, these are the people who are happy. They're happy warriors in the work of the gospel. And that's really what I see. And um, I think it's going to grow more and more. Uh, i give you one example. Uh, one of the guys who's come in recently to Vanguard Presbytery put the... Um, uh, the whole the whole thing of the uh, the convocation on his website within two hours he had twelve hundred hits on it. Oh wow! So so there's a there's a lot of interest um, in what we're doing, and again, what we're finding is people are finding it very refreshing that we are intentionally evangelistic. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We're going to speak with um, with truth, but also with grace. And we're going to speak boldly. You know, Paul the Apostle asked that uh, he would be able to speak the Word of God with boldness. And a lot of what you hear today is more of a nuanced uh, approach. You know, a nuance basically means we're hiding something. Well, we're not hiding anything. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're lifting up Jesus. And, you know, we have to talk about sin, but we also want to talk about the beauty of our of our great Lord and Savior who gave himself up for us. So that's uh, that's what we're all about. Very positive, very upbeat, and we're very excited about what God is doing. And we believe it's only going to grow as time goes on. Well, I pray that it will because we need more biblically faithful denominations. And I think this is a wonderful effort that you all are undertaking. Here's a question for you, Al. Given what the PCA has done in terms of the downgrade, specifically in the area of homosexuality, you know, accepting that now you have an out gay pastor who says he's celibate, but you have a, a gay pastor self-professed in the PCA. He's not disciplined. Everybody kind of rallies around him and protects him. The revoice stuff all came to naught. You have the social justice movement. A lot of this leftist politics stuff that has seeped into the PCA. How do you guard against that when you're starting a new work? How do you plan to address those issues? You know, you can't ever mitigate completely against sin down the road, obviously, but are you putting into place certain things that will guard against that happening in Vanguard? Well, you have to be very careful when you allow men to come in as ordained uh, officers in the church. You, you have to ask the hard questions. You have to practice church discipline. Uh, you have to build within a denomination a certain culture. And um, I think what drives that culture a lot is uh, evangelistic work. I, I was reading a quote the other day from the great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you know, the, the downgrade and the problems in the church 
uh, never happened with the missionary on the street, the evangelist, the pastor who's in the fray. It always happens from those in the ivory tower, the elites. Yes. And that's where it always starts. And so what we're trying to say is, listen, we've got to be out doing ministry. You know, 80% of the people in this country don't go to church. And man, that's a lot of people. It is. And we, we have to go to them. We can't wait for them to show up at church. It rarely happens. You've got to go get them and bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, so we just have to constantly keep before our people. We need to be out. We need to be evangelizing. We need to um, uh, disciple people and so forth. So and then we're going to also write uh, a number of position papers that we will present at our various meetings, just calling us back, repeatedly calling us back to what we're all about. That's and. And I think that's important. That's wonderful. And I know that part of the uh, list of things that you want to implement, I know Dewey Roberts, who's worked so much on the creation of Vanguard Presbytery, has emphasized there will be no permanent committees at the General Assembly level. It's going to be distinctively grassroots. Is this guarding against some of what went wrong in the PCA, that it did become too elitist at a certain point? Absolutely. We became hierarchical, uh, particularly at the General Assembly level. And we believe that the emphasis ought to be on the presbytery itself, that is the the local regional area of churches and the local church. And uh, that's where we're going to focus our attention. And I was explaining that the other day in the Q&A session. I was talking about uh, missions. I said, you know, missionaries are going to come out of the local church and out of the presbyteries. And it's it's very difficult for missionaries to raise money. They have to travel all over the country to get $50 here and $50 there. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they could basically get the support all from one presbytery, yeah. from like the state of Alabama or the state of you know East, Tex- East Texas in the state of Texas, something like that. So those are the kind of things that we believe can uh, can really help. So we we want to stay away from that hierarchical position, which I think is always problematic. Well, right. So this is going to be a very encouraging work, and I think this is exciting what God is doing in the midst of all of you who are pushing for a a really faithful church and a really faithful gathering together of churches under a new banner, a new denomination. What are you praying for right now, Alan? How would you ask listeners or people who might want to join with you to pray for this new work? Because I know prayer is the most important thing whenever you're trying to do something like this. There's a lot of opposition. I'm sure you're probably not only getting some opposition within the PC a little bit here and there, but also the enemy of our souls is also working all the time to try to stop any movement that is trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ. How can we pray for your efforts right now and for you? Well, thank you very much, Janet. Yes, I think the big thing is to pray for people to be open and receptive to the gospel. You know, Paul says, none understand, none seek for God. He says that in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2. He says, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, as we go out and evangelize, we realize that the Holy Spirit has to work in their hearts. He has to draw them. He has to cause them to be born again so they can repent and believe the gospel. And we know that this this work will not happen if the Holy Spirit does not show up. So we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on us. We need to walk humbly before the Lord. We're not here to try to impress anybody. We're not, you know, there's no big shots in this thing, you know. It's, it's we're working to, to humbly seek the Lord. So if, you're, if your listeners could pray for the Holy Spirit to be on us in our preaching and teaching and evangelizing, 
that would be wonderful and we'd be very very thankful for that very good we will do it reverend al baker and vanguardpresbytery.com is the website you can check it out if you're interested in learning more al as always wonderful to have you with us keep up the good work and we'll be praying for you and this new work of god we're so excited for you Thanks so much, Janet. God bless you, and may God continue to work through you as well. Oh, thank you so much, Al. Appreciate your being with us. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford Today. We'll see you next time. 